The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. You know, Maoism is, at the end of the day, appealing because it isn't aligned with the Soviet or the U.S. art. It is a way to critique the mistakes of Soviet expansionism and U.S. imperialism, while at the same time maintaining the kind of ethical and political commitment to communist revolution. This constant vigilance to self-criticize and to kind of enforce this discipline on not only just the party apparatus, but on the entire populace. I think that is certainly a very appealing element for would-be Maoists across the world. In this episode, exporting Mao Zedong thought. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. In the decades after Mao Zedong and his peasant army won China's civil war and established the People's Republic of China in 1949, Chinese Communist Party Chairman Mao became a source of inspiration for many who had aspirations or pretensions of liberating the poor and the oppressed. Mao's theories of class struggle and violent revolution were encapsulated as Mao Zedong thought in China and became known as Maoism elsewhere. Despite its roots in China, Maoism spread around the globe in the second half of the 20th century, igniting revolutions and armed uprisings from Southeast Asia to South America and beyond. And as we'll hear, global Maoism in thought and action is not just a thing of the past, a relic of history. With us to examine how Mao Zedong's ideology spread beyond China's geographic boundaries and its impact on the lives of millions of people across the planet a University of Melbourne Asia historian, Dr. Matthew Galway, and expert on Mao's influence and legacy in Central and South America, Dr. Carlos Amador, from Michigan Technological University in the United States. Matt Carlos, welcome to Ear to Asia. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Now, Matt, let's start with a bit of an anatomy, I suppose, of what Maoism actually is. Most of us have heard the term over the decades, and we probably have our little idea of what Maoism actually is. Let's unpack that now. What are the main elements of Maoism? It's a great question and uh, one that is not super easy to answer, but I will do my best. In essence, Mao Zedong's various written texts, his thought, his speeches, and the institutions that he envisioned and established in China as he conceived in the 1930s and 40s and as he applied from 49 onward, very much constitute the foundation of what I've argued as an ideological system. What it constitutes mainly in terms of actual practice is the notion of a critical interpretive paradigm, an ideological discourse, a radical vocabulary and syntax for waging political struggle, and a strategy for fighting protracted war. Some of these key elements include, of course, new democracy, which is the whole idea of developing on the Marxist premise of stages of development or stages of revolutionary development and socialist revolution, and then applying that concretely to the historical situation that was prevailing in China during the anti-Japanese war of the 1930s and 1940s. Can we tease out a little of those elements you just highlighted? New democracy We'll probably come back to this word democracy a few times in our conversation, but what did Mao actually mean when he projected that word, that banner word, if you like, democracy? When Mao talks about new democracy, he's making the argument that a bourgeois democratic revolution and a socialist revolution 
ought to be combined into a single stage rather than two separate back-to-back -back stages. This, of course, is developing on a Marxist understanding of the stages of economic and historical development of the modes of production. So what Mao is meaning by new democracy is that China must progress through several stages, but that this single stage ought to lead to the development of a new democratic type of China. And this would mean, of course, socialist edification and kind of the mass politics that came to characterize Maoist China from 49 to 76. And the word contradictions or contradiction, really fundamental to the whole idea of Maoism. Absolutely. Mao believed that even with the establishment of socialism in China or anywhere, that there would constantly be the pervasive contradictions that would come to challenge the uh, legitimacy of socialism in, a, in an established country. So what Mao argued is that the revolution must always continue to safeguard the gains of the Communist Party. So he argued that contradictions are actually very natural and that one ought to kind of accept them as always going to exist. Thus, the revolution must be resolute and must continue. And this, of course, establishes his theory of permanent revolution. Carlos, would you like to enlarge a little on the idea of what Maoism actually is through your lens? From your question on contradiction, when we get to the case of Peru specifically, one of the things that this contradiction is going to emerge as is a kind of disciplinary, constant self-criticism, right? The whole idea of the two lines theory in Marxism, that within the development, you always have tendencies that are pulling bourgeois tendencies. The contradiction is always at play. You have two lines, bourgeois pulling and the revolutionary party, the communist party, trying to fight these tendencies. So contradiction is healthy, emerges and creates a kind of sense of self-disciplining. We have the stereotypical ideology of the struggle session or the struggle meeting. But in Latin America, specifically in the, in the Peruvian context, which is, I think, the most really historically developed and archived emanation of Maoism in the Western Hemisphere, you have this constant, uh, vital disciplinary identity to self-critique, almost a loyalist idea that the party is always to be refined. For me, I think the interesting thing as a scholar of Maoism in Latin America is how this is deployed both rhetorically and disciplinarily within party ideas. How did the Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path, PCP, Partido Comunista de Peru, the Peruvian Communist Party, how did they constantly critique and look for contradictions within their own party? And how did that become focalized and practiced out in the world? Matt, let's just enumerate some of the key differences between Mao's ideas and historically upriver from the Soviet Revolution in the late 19th century, Marxist-Leninism. One of the big debates in the 1960s and 1970s, when earlier historians of Mao were producing these very, very pioneering texts, was whether Mao was truly a Marxist-Leninist. Now we're at a point where historians almost universally agree that Mao is a serious Marxist-Leninist. We ought to take his Marxism-Leninism seriously, but also see how he developed and adapted it to apply it concretely 
to the Chinese historical experience. And one of the key kind of revelations from these decades of study is that Mao's sinification of Marxism-Leninism, which he initiated in the mid-1930s towards the end of the 1930s and reiterated in On New Democracy in 1940, entailed creative adaptation that Marxism-Leninism is not to live in abstraction. It must be breathed into a national voice for it to mean something beyond mere dogma or abstraction. Mao often railed against dogmatists, including one of his chief rivals, Wang Ming. And then after Wang Ming's kind of falling out of grace, Mao became, of course, the supreme theorist of the party and encouraged all members of the CCP, and then later all members of China, to not merely fondle the arrow of Marxism-Leninism, but to shoot it to the target of the Chinese historical experience and the Chinese revolution. So I would say that what differentiates Mao Zedong thought or Mao Zedong Sisiang from Marxism-Leninism, especially the Soviet accretion of Marxism-Leninism, is that emphasis on creative adaptation, that one should not merely follow to a T, the Soviet model of bureaucratic centralism, but one must take into account the concrete historical, social, and cultural milieu into which Marxism-Leninism has to take root for it to mean something normative and mean something concrete to the people who are going to fight and die for it. So be more specific then, just identify some of those aspects that Mao used as adaptation within the Chinese setting, the Chinese culture. Mao recognized, of course, that China lacked a comparable urban-based proletariat to rival the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and many of the European case studies that Marx made central. But of course, Marx in the 1880s noticed in Russia that there was tremendous potential in peasants under the right proletarian leadership could constitute a very powerful force. So Mao, of course, recognizing this and seeing this perfectly in line with Marxism-Leninism at the time regarded the primacy of peasants in China's revolutionary movement. He did not say they would lead the party, but did see that they constituted a major force. And this he observes in his 1927 report on a Hunan peasant movement. There are also other elements that are equally important. Of course, we've already discussed new democracy, which he views it as very much in line with the pervading Marxism-Leninism of the day. But again, that whole idea of sinification to make Marxism-Leninism, its inherent universality, speak to the concrete realities of China, which in this case, of course, would be predominantly agrarian society, a communist party that had very little, if no access to the urban centers in which it was founded. They also had to recognize that how are you going to mobilize people on ideas of dialectical materialism or you know, these very kind of core concepts of of Marxism-Leninism. You have to speak it into their their own grievances and their own struggle. And this is one of the great successes of Mao as both a charismatic person, a charismatic leader that he's able to crystallize in the 1930s and 40s, and how he's able to kind of, with almost a folksy approach to things, draw people into these abstract concepts and make them relate to their everyday lives. And the best way to put this, and and just to kind of sum up my long-winded point here, is how he looked at the major contradictions between classes in China. He saw very much that the landlords and the peasants, therein lay kind of the major conflict between classes in China. And this was very much different from what his predecessors in the Marxist-Leninist canon had viewed. Carlos, listening to those descriptions of the adaptations that Mao made, what are your thoughts on those, I guess, looking through your lens in uh, Central and South America? 
in the Latin American context, probably the most famous or at least the most widely read Latin American Marxist before Che Guevara and Fidel Castro and others is Jose Carlos Mariategui. And Mariategui's seven essays in the interpretation of Peruvian reality is one of the most developed kind of Marxist historical documents and theoretical documents that looks at the specific, historical, precise relationship between the classes. I would say that almost independently, right around the same time in the mid-20s, you have Mariategui and Mao, no communication with each other, coming up with these very precise interpretations of class in the context. Marxism always has this as part of its wheelhouse, but yet Marxism-Leninism becomes seen as a kind of intransigent, rigid, unyielding, lockstep dedication to party movement. What's interesting to me in Peru, in the specific case of the Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path, it's never Maoism. It's Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. From the earliest days of the PCP, Partido Comunista Peru, the Peruvian Communist Party, at least the PCP as Gonzalo Abimael Guzman Reynosa developed it. There's this accretion of the three sort of strands of thinking. Matt and Carlos, our central theme for this conversation is the export of Maoism. Matt, take us back to that fervid period after the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. What was the world like then? From 1949 onward, here we have China, of course, establishing itself as a communist country under the Chinese Communist Party and Mao Zedong as its supreme leader. China, from then on, pretty much had a few major hurdles to get over. One of them was establishing new allies. And after the Korean War, which waged on from the late 40s until 1953, and then with the settlement of the Geneva Convention in 1954, the partition of Korea's, you have China now trying to struggle to get new allies, to get countries to recognize it as the PRC, the People's Republic of China, and to regard it not as this isolated enemy that needs to be handled with extreme caution. So one of the things that leaders in China, policymakers, did was to try and cement alliances with the newly independent countries of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And the 1955 Non-Aligned Conference, or the Afro-Asian Solidarity Conference in Bandung, Indonesia, presented one major opportunity whereby China sent its great statesman, Zhou Enlai, who was Mao's premier uh, and the premier of the CCP, uh, to Bandung. And there he made personal friendships with many leaders from the newly independent countries. Afterwards, he would go on tours. Uh, he visited Cambodia, for one example, many times, developing a very, very strong personal friendship with Norodom Sihanouk, who was the neutral, non-aligned leader of independent Cambodia. This was a major foreign policy and domestic policy win for the CCP. They were able to show their people that the revolution was winning and that they were actually champions of world peace and that communism is an overall global good and that the Soviet Union and the United States were the actual problematic agents, at least the Soviet Union from 1960 onward. And they were also able to show international audiences that China was willing to listen to non-aligned nations and was actually interested in promoting autonomous socialist development in the former colonial worlds of Africa and Asia. 
Matt, the words colonialism and imperialism are fundamental to that description. Absolutely. After the European colonial powers started to kind of turn inward, especially after World War II with the repairing of Europe and the colonial peoples of Asia specifically, and then Africa, standing up and fighting for the deliverance of the promises that the colonial powers said they would grant them to go fight on behalf of these empires in two world wars now by this point. These countries, of course, would fight these very long battles for independence, uh, some more violent than others, but nevertheless. And what this did is it allowed China to kind of, again, support the development of these countries as non-aligned nations, which meant that they would not side with D.C. or Moscow. But the problem was that Mao believed that just because colonialism was gone doesn't mean that those powers that kept the underclasses oppressed had been removed wholesale and that there must be a constant struggle against imperialism, which he viewed as capitalism. So these new countries were hastily integrated into a global market. And what he would characterize as the third world, these newly independent African, Asian, and Latin American countries ought to strive and fight against capitalism from entrenching these countries in a cyclical phenomenon of underdevelopment. And this is why Mao and Zhou Enlai and many of his greatest uh, supporters advocated that countries be not aligned, that they don't serve as mere cannon fodder for Moscow or DC designs, and that they stand up for themselves, become self-reliant, and develop as autonomous socialist non-aligned countries. It's worth underlining, isn't it, that Mao's schema for third world, a phrase we use these days to mean something else, I guess, but his schema for third world as a label is very different from today. Oh, absolutely. The three worlds theory as developed in communist China was not a pejorative in any sense of the word. In fact, the idea of three worlds, as, as Mao discussed with Zambian President Kenneth Gaunda in 1975, was that there was the first world of the Soviet Union and the United States, these major powers that had imperialist designs on the third world or these newly independent countries. There was the second world of countries that were allied to these respective countries. In the case of Mao's usage, we're talking about Japan, which was very much built by the United States under the viceroyalty of Douglas MacArthur, the former kind of head general of the Pacific Theater in World War II, to make it a bulwark against communism, especially with the fall of China to the communists in 49. And then Canada would, of course, would have fallen into this as well. And Australia, these countries would have been the second world, these allied states to these metropoles. And then the third world would be all those countries that had previously been colonies or semi-colonies, as Mao would define them, and that they ought to band together and form a solidarity movement grounded on autonomous development of socialism and not stand as allied to any of these countries for their own kind of nefarious imperialist purposes. Now, the three worlds theory, I think for many people in Latin America, aligned not perfectly, but at least more coherently with some of the developmental and class issues that countries like Peru, countries like Bolivia, countries like Colombia, were dealing with at the time. There were still questions of land reform, sharecropping, issues of massively impoverished peasant classes away from the urban centers. Well, at the same time, you had cities like Lima, Peru, Bogota, capital Colombia, Santiago, Chile, that were developed, that were relatively cosmopolitan as capitals that were penetrated into the international kind of conflict between the U.S. 
and the Soviet Union over hegemony, for lack of a better term. And the three worlds theory that Mao articulated helped penetrate into Peru specifically because it aligned itself. It was a way of seeing what was actually happening. This kind of simultaneity of feudal relations or what Mao called semi-colonial relations that still had the mark of the 16th century. There were families who had been in charge of massive estates for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it was a way to see the world with, I think, maybe not much more accuracy, but with a great deal more affinity. Matt, would you say that that's something that you can see, that the three worlds theory becomes a sort of inspirational moment for a lot of Marxists in the region? Absolutely. That is exactly it. And this is one of the big kind of triumphs of Peruvian Marxist Jose Carlos Mariategui is, is that he recognized that systemic perpetuation of these estates and wealth concentrated in very few hands, predominantly white Peruvian hands. He recognized the plight of the rural peoples, specifically the indigenous populations of Peru. So the idea that Peru is, despite its independence, many, many centuries removed, still had these various issues that were keeping the poor in this perpetual state of poverty and the disenfranchisement of the indigenous peoples, it created a locus uh, and uh, kind of a local example of the three worlds theory between city and countryside, that the city was a reflection of a greater country that did not exist, right? It was the city was the first world, its surrounding suburbs were the second world, and the third world was in the countryside, right? And this allows someone like Abimel Guzman, the founder and leader of The Shining Path, who goes to China and he reads Mao's works. Having already read Mariategui's criticisms of Peruvian society, and so kind of his analyses of its socioeconomic structure, and then Mao provided very much these analytical tools, the vocabulary, the syntax, and some of the elements that were missing in Mariategui's diagnoses from the 1920s and 30s. And Guzman is able to combine them through that creative adaptation element and emancipatory element that is endemic to Maoism. And thus create what he will later characterize as the fourth sword of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, which he would characterize as Gonzalo thought or Pensamiento Gonzalo. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark with guests Dr. Matthew Galway and Dr. Carlos Amador, and we're discussing the global export and legacy of Maoism. Matt, let's go to Southeast Asia and look at some actual revolutions and fights for independence and change with their politics. Let's use Vietnam, Cambodia and Myanmar as our case studies, if you like. How was Maoism used by various insurgents and leaders in Southeast Asia? In those three case studies, you see three very resilient and fascinating manifestations of Maoism take root. The Vietnamese Communist Party is engaging with translations of Mao's works. At that time, they would have been French translations of Russian translations of the original Chinese. They're reading these pieces by Mao in translation and seeing value in particularly Mao's ideas of new democracy and people's war or guerrilla warfare, whereby the countryside will surround the cities and overwhelm them through a broad classes movement of peasants, workers, and the like. This is what is most resilient to the Vietnamese communists at that point. Now, this is where the Cambodians come in, because there are two forces at work with Cambodian Maoism, and I'll try and keep this as succinct as possible. 
you have the intellectual movement of Cambodian Maoists, which is your Pol Pots, your Puyuns, your Hunims. These are all uh, at least major figures and future ministers of the Communist Party of Cambodia, aka the Khmer Rouge. They all went and pursued advanced degrees in Paris, and there they read French translations of Mao's works. But not all of them went in the same direction with what they were reading. Some of them engaged with the political economy of Maoism, and others were purely interested in kind of the strategy and praxis of Maoism. And this is where Pol Pot, who returns to Cambodia without a degree, joins the Vietnamese Communist Party in a sense. He's a member of the Khmer Workers' Party, one of the predecessor organizations to the Khmer Rouge, learns from the Vietnamese very much the operational tactics and the strategies that they were engaging with and wrestling with that were very much informed by Mao. It's only in 1965-66 when he visits China, possibly even at the same time as Abimel Guzman, we don't know for sure. The uh, Asia-Africa Latin American Center is quite large and many, many future communist leaders would end up studying there. It is after his visit to China that he sees these ideas in practice and has like a vision or a dream that he wakes up to and says, this is what I want my movement to be. I want us to be implementing this Maoism in Cambodia. The shape it takes after that is very much centered on this intellectual Paris trained vision of implementing Maoism in Cambodia and, of course, using his military and tactical strategies there. And in Burma, it takes a very similar outlook as well with the Burmese Communist Party, which itself has a lot of factionalism in the 60s. But the idea, of course, is very much like with the two previous examples, taking the ideas from the Chinese historical experience of waging struggle from the countrysides to surround the cities, creating a broad classes movement, and then implementing the socialist vision that Mao had outlined in his works to Burma and what will become Myanmar. And this movement, because of its factionalism and because, of course, the very strong right-wing nature of the Nguyen government. Nguyen, of course, was the head of the Burmese government for decades. The BCP, or Burmese Communist Party, is unable to really succeed to the degree that Cambodia and Vietnam, their respective revolutions, let out. And, of course, they had disastrous consequences uh, in the end. Let's jump across the oceans now to Peru. And Carlos, the, the shining path, they led uh, some bloody insurgencies in the Andean part of Peru during that decade, the 80s into the 90s. Now introduces more seriously to Gonzalo. Who was he? What was the appeal of Maoism to him? And how did he adapt it? There's a whole tradition of left-leaning parties in Latin America, especially in Peru that are, I would say, left nationalist, maybe left populist. Prior to the first big action, which is the, the taking of one of the election offices in 1980 in Ayacucho, Peru, by a small Shining Path body, there had been a military dictatorship in Peru, the Alvarado regime. And Alvarado was a really interesting figure. He was a nationalist. He was powerfully sort of anti-U.S. He was pro-Indigenous. It was very soon after he takes over in 1968, Quechua, which is the second most spoken language in Peru, is turned into an official language. The national anthem is sung in Quechua. There are Quechua programs in schools. The economy becomes this kind of fusion of a kind of left corporativism. Corporations and businesses that want to work with the regime are working with Alvarado. The interesting thing is that there is a left government in power just before Gonzalo and the Shining Path really start to accelerate. 
because of economic collapse and a variety of reasons, economic problems, the Alvarado regime cedes and they call for elections. Guzman is a professor, a philosophy professor who had been slowly but surely since his return in the mid-60s from China, building a kind of base, a base of young, sometimes poor, but mostly middle class, rural, urban. What I mean by rural, urban is from the cities of these primarily rural provinces of Peru and creating his own synthesis slowly but surely of Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. And one of the first things that happens is the when the Shining Path forms is when the elections are called for the first time in over a decade, they declare themselves against electoral politics. They already begin that kind of creative, adaptive critique, but singularly anti-capitalist and anti-bourgeois. And what do we mean by that by anti-bourgeois? The idea that electoral politics only reflect a kind of synthesis between the state and the most powerful capitalist forces. Gonzalo, Abimael Guzman, he'll take on the name Gonzalo very shortly, like 75, 76. Gonzalo becomes a figure that abandons all pretenses, at least in the Shining Path version of the Communist Party, the PCP, Partido Comunista Peru, the Peruvian Communist Party, becomes completely anti-electoral. They still maintain this identity as a political party, but the focus is on the revolutionary guerrilla warfare based on a synthesis of Mao's protracted warfare and his three stages of strategic warfare to take over Peru. Gonzalo believed that the only way to create a just communist state was through a military takeover through very pluralistic, radical means of the state. The Sendero Luminoso, the Shining Path, effectively begins in the rural province of Ayacucho, has its first military successes, and it does some of its most violent actions in the rural provinces, but is seen widely as a kind of theoretical and practical failure in terms of its relationship to the peasant, el campesino in Spanish, to the rural areas, even though they commit the vast majority of their violence in the rural provinces, Ayacucho, Junín, Apurímac, these are all sort of central. If you look at the map of Peru, it's sort of in the middle, just west of the Andes. But it's in Lima that they become fearsome. The CIA published the report in 1986 saying that they were pretty much on their way to taking over. We come to their actions in Lima, where they spend years assassinating political figures, terrorizing the populace with constant targeted blackouts. And then, of course, the murder of Maria Elena Moyano, who is one of the most famous victims of Shining Path violence, who is from Villa El Salvador, which is a, um, a large, very impoverished municipality. She was a leftist worker that was very popular, and she becomes one of these, these victims. She's murdered violently by the Shining Path. And then, of course, the bombing in Tarata on the 16th of July, 1992, which kills 25 people and wounds hundreds and hundreds of others, about 300 others, I think, in the heart of Miraflores Lima. And Miraflores Lima is one of the wealthiest and most traditionally powerful parts of the capital. Back in China, eventually Mao dies. The Great Leap Forward killed millions of Chinese. The very long and uh, destructive Cultural Revolution almost tore China apart. So what was the appeal of Maoism in a practical sense and in an evidentiary sense to the Shining Path? I think part of it is 
the idea of war and guerrilla war as first a possibility. Mao's work on protracted struggle on the nature of guerrilla warfare is incredibly adept and flexible for implementation in a variety of contexts, especially in places like rural Peru. So I think that it appealed to revolutionaries who were looking for an independent way to imagine themselves as a guerrilla revolution. Secondly, there's a kind of implicit disciplinary idea that the Maoist has, at least the Maoist group has around itself. Matt and I have discussed this book, Julia Lovell's Maoism, A Global History, and there's some issues with the book. But one of the things that I find so interesting is that one of her main subtheses is how Maoism is really a kind of disciplinary formation, and it helps to create for revolutionaries a constant set of principles that allow them to correct, to self-discipline, move on. It doesn't have to look outside of its own theoretical context to gain power over its own members. And I think that was a really important set of philosophical and sociological tools for the Sendero Luminoso, and especially the highest echelon. It was always a very small party in terms of raw numbers, but an incredibly disciplined one. The Shiny Path was incredibly bloodthirsty. There's this idea that the historian and Guzman himself talks about called the quota. In English, it's translated into quota with a Q, but in Spanish, it means something much more like a payment, una quota, a payment in blood. Part of the idea is that the Shining Path begins as this incredibly violent summary execution, forcing individuals to kill members of their family for ideological error. The violence was always executed with a kind of discipline and absolute lack of ethical doubt. In 1980, in, I think it's Breña, which is a municipality of Lima, there's a famous picture of a dog nailed to a post with a small cardboard sign on it that says, Deng Xiaoping dog. This little symbol of nailing an animal in order to critique Deng Xiaoping's thought is a kind of a good way to understand the absolute commitment to violence that the Sendero had. The Shining Path turns into an organization where violence against anyone, indigenous or otherwise, could be justified in order to support the path of permanent revolution. And I think the third one is, and it's not one that I've seen written about a lot, it's a kind of independence. You know, Maoism is, at the end of the day, appealing because it isn't aligned with the Soviet or the U.S. arc. It is a way to critique the mistakes of Soviet expansionism and U.S. imperialism, while at the same time maintaining the kind of ethical and political commitment to communist revolution. I think that's a really interesting point because Peru, with its independent Marxist tradition, and Latin America with a long independent Marxist tradition in Cuba, as well as in Argentina and other places, nonetheless is always within these two spheres of the Soviet and the U.S. sphere after the 40s. And I think that Maoism allowed the shining path to take up a kind of Peruvian independence. Just to add one little thing there, and I think Carlos has alluded to it already, so I'll just elaborate, is the notion of permanent revolution, that even with independence, even with that secured, at least to a degree, you don't have the real independence. Your country may still be 
hastily part of this unfair system of exploitation, right, which is capitalism. Maoism provides the critical interpretive lens to view that as an unequal relationship and to fight to change it. And I think Mao's advocacy for a permanent struggle to safeguard revolutionary gains and to eliminate the resurgence of bourgeois elements really kind of strikes a sympathetic chord in many newly independent countries. In the case of Cambodia, Maoism is, is often used as a lens, at least among the future CPK ministers of the Khmer Rouge. Maoism is used very much as a lens to interpret the various classes in society, to explain why you know there's this persistence of usury and, and cyclical poverty in the countryside, and that there's a stark rural-urban divide. And Mao provides the language and the syntax for understanding those class differences. And permanent revolution becomes very much the theoretical underpinning for it, that we must continue to struggle. And even after taking state power on 17 April 1975, the Cambodian communists say that the revolution has actually just started and they declare year zero and that the revolution has to continue anew. This is very appealing to someone like Abimel Guzman, who views very much that of the Peruvian movement as one that needs to go in perpetuity. I mean, one very famous quote from Guzman's, uh, an interview that he did in 1988 with El Diario, if I may quote it, I have it somewhat memorized here, but he argued that the democratic revolution or the Peruvian democratic revolution must be followed uninterruptedly by a socialist revolution. So hearkening to Mao's new democracy, on this, we would like to specify taking what President Mao has taught us with a lot of foresight, thinking about what could arise. He tells us that the democratic revolution ends on the same day that power is taken in the whole country and the People's Republic is founded. And on that same day and hour, the socialist revolution begins. And in it, we have to develop a dictatorship of the proletariat and thus initiate the basic transformation to develop socialism. So there's this constant kind of struggle to you know, move that paradigm forward, keep the revolution going and safeguard those revolutionary gains. And this is, I think, again, what Carlos has mentioned already this constant vigilance to self-criticize and to kind of enforce this discipline on not only just the party apparatus, but on the entire populace. I think that is certainly a very appealing element for would-be Maoists across the world. Matt, the image of Mao, that huge image of Mao, sits at the gate to the old imperial palace in the Forbidden City, looking out on Tiananmen Square. But the polity he looks out on now in the age of Xi Jinping is fundamentally different. Hypercapitalism, very little socialism in education, health, etc. How is Xi Jinping the inheritor of Maoism? In every sense, every subsequent leader of the Chinese Communist Party has had to pay some homage to Mao. Uh, whether they believed so or not, he is very much the national father of the People's Republic of China, his thought codified in the PRC's constitution. And even Xi Jinping himself has included homages to Mao in his various speeches that were released in translation by the foreign languages press called The Governance of China. And Xi Jinping himself, I think, recognizes that one needs to identify value in Mao and Maoism if they're going to have legitimacy for leadership of the Chinese Communist Party and the PRC at large. But I think this is just a legitimating practice, right? It is not uncommon. Every political leader does it. 
But what this has done, especially since the um, reform and opening up of the 80s, the Gaigu Kaifeng, with China's increased marketization, public intellectuals have really kind of come together and began to not only reappraise the Maoist era as not necessarily all wrong or all bad or all good, but to see value in the planned economy as kind of a check and balance on China's rapid marketization. This group of scholars are called the Shinzo Pai, or the, the New Left. And there are many, many renowned scholars in China, public intellectuals, such as Sui Jiren, or more famously Wang Hui. And these scholars believe very much that the increased neoliberalism in China has kind of forced it to lose its way and forced a greater gap between rich and poor. And they see value in the planned economy and those socialist elements that Mao had kind of ushered in in the 1940s, sorry, the late 40s and early 50s and 60s. You can say that Maoism is very much the lens through which the Communist Party interprets the world. It's very much codified. Even with marketization, it's hard to say that Maoism's kind of just been discarded. There are still, of course, rhetorical and philosophical elements of Maoism that are very, very pervasive today. But what's happened is that Xi Jinping and his predecessors have very much overseen the turn towards statism in China and this market statism. And this is where these public intellectuals of the new left are such important mouthpieces of recognizing that China as a communist country ought to deliver on its promises to its poor and disenfranchised. One of the things I've been working on for several years with my former advisor at UBC in Vancouver, Timothy Cheek, along with many of my colleagues, including Craig Smith in the Asia Institute here at the University of Melbourne, is to translate these works by these major groups, whether they're Chinese liberals or left liberals or new Marxists, and to bring these into the discussion for English readers so that more people can know that there's this ongoing debate about the legacies of Maoism that we ought not consign it to the dustbin of history, so to speak, that his innovations and his ideas still hold currency in contemporary China among these debates. Matt, Carlos, thank you so much for being with us on Ear to Asia. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, everyone. Our guest this time, the University of Melbourne's Matthew Galway and Dr. Carlos Amador from Michigan Technological University in the United States. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 14th of April, 2020, with all participants safely ensconced in their homes. Producers were Kelvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company. <laughs>